science fiction offered me a, a route by which I could publish the kind of thing that I wanted to write. The premise which was to me so important, and that is the subjective world of one rather powerful person can infringe on the world of another person. I mean, if I can make you see <clears throat> the world the way I see it, then you will automatically think the way I think. You will come to the conclusions I come to. If, if, if I can control your perception, that the, the greatest power that a human being can exert over others is to get control of their perceptions of reality. In a career that ran for 32 amphetamine-full years and resulted in 44 novels and 121 short stories, it is curious that author Philip K. Dick defined himself not as a writer, but instead as a fictionalizing philosopher. Dick said he used his writing and storytelling ability as a, quote, means to formulate my perception. Taking in the totality of Dick's works, his perception can be summed up by two overriding questions he considered fundamental to our existence. What is real and what constitutes an authentic human being? Nowhere did those two questions so neatly engage one another then in his 1962 masterpiece, The Man in the High Castle. The novel earned Dick the Hugo Award in 1963, and since September 2015, a long-form TV series has been streaming on Amazon Prime. What the hell are you doing here, Joe Blake? I want my country back, sir. You want it back? You never had it. Sir? You were still sucking your thumb when they dropped the bomb. This shithole's the only country you've ever known. Well, my father told me what it was like before the war. Your father, huh? He said every man was free. How do I know you're not a spy? A spy? The resistance, what's left of it, is shot through with them. Half my friends are dead. Guess that's why they're down to kids like you. I'm not a spy. The Man in the High Castle is alternate history a genre often categorized within sci-fi. That might make it sound modern, but as literary fiction, it can be sourced as far back as two and a half thousand years ago. Then the Roman scholar Titus Livius, or Livy, posed a question fundamental to antiquity. What would the world have been like if Alexander the Great had expanded his empire not east across Persia, Babylonia and India, but instead west across the Mediterranean and into Europe? In his history of Rome, or to use the Latin, ad urbe conditi libri, Livy concluded that the Romans would have defeated the Macedonian king. But it hardly matters what Livy's conclusion was. The point was that Livy was reimagining Rome's past and thus reappraising Rome's present. In Livy's case, he was saying that Rome was the greatest ever empire because it could see off all military challenges. Philip K. Dick was posing a similar question, fundamental to 20th century history. What if the Allies had not won World War II, but instead had the Axis powers triumphed? Dick's alternate history sees Hitler's fascists having taken control of Europe, Africa, Arabia, vast swathes of Western Asia, and the Eastern coast and Midwest of America. While Japan's Emperor Hirohito has taken control of Eastern Asia, India, Australia, the Pacific Ocean, half of South America and the western seaboard of what was once known as the United States. Similar to Livy, Dick was reimagining America's past in order to reappraise its present. And in Dick's case, 
he was saying that the world's leading democracy was perilously susceptible to fascism. Class, rise. I swear I will observe the law, conscientiously fulfill my duties at home and school, be faithful and obedient, and pledge absolute allegiance until death to the leader of the Nazi Empire, Adolf Hitler. It must have been disconcerting for readers to engage with Dick's novel. In Dick's 1962, there was no World Series to watch on television, no Marvel Comics to buy from the newsagent, and certainly no Cadillacs in which to go cruising down Main Street on hot summer nights. And none of that meant none of this. Booker T and the MGs were an R&B band whose melodies impacted on what is celebrated as Southern Soul. In 1962, they recorded Green Onions for the Stax record label in Memphis, Tennessee. As the single rose to number three in the Billboard charts, the quartet appeared on television and offered up a progressive image for audiences. The original members of the band were a mix of black and white artists, the white members being Louis Steinberg on bass and Steve Cropper on guitar with black musicians Al Jackson on drums and Booker T. Jones leading on organ and piano. Such integration was the musical embodiment of the civil rights movement that had scored a great victory on October the 1st of that year, when James Meredith became the first African-American student to attend Mississippi State University. If the America of Dick's novel had been real, there would have been no Booker T. Jones, no Al Jackson Jr., no James Meredith, and we would never have heard these words. I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. I accept this award on behalf of a civil rights movement which is moving with determination and a majestic scorn for risk and danger to establish a reign of freedom and a rule of justice. I am mindful that only yesterday in Birmingham, Alabama, our children crying out for brotherhood were answered with fire hoses snarling dogs and even death. I am mindful that only yesterday in Philadelphia, Mississippi, young people seeking to secure the right to vote were brutalized and murdered. I am mindful that debilitating and grinding poverty afflicts my people and chains them to the lowest rung of the economic ladder. Therefore, I must ask why this prize is awarded to a movement which is beleaguered and committed to unrelenting struggle. The historical fact that Dr. Martin Luther King had to lead a civil rights movement to secure ethnic equality 
showed just how prevalent white supremacists were in the 1960s. And had those same white supremacists prevailed, the fiction of Dick's novel would not have been that far from reality. The Nazis would have eliminated almost all African Americans from the continent, leaving a select few for slave labour. And as for Europe, the final solution would have achieved its catastrophic aim of annihilating all Jewish people. But if you carefully read Dick's novel and pay close attention to Frank Spottens' adaptation for Amazon Prime, you will notice that both attest to the fact that genocide had already taken place in America. It is difficult to accurately determine, but it is estimated that when Europeans first arrived on the eastern seaboard in the 16th century, there was already more than 10 million people native to the land. It was never planned nor carried out like the Nazis' final solution, but nevertheless, Native American Indians suffered a similar fate. Because by 1900, disease, warfare and enslavement had decimated their population to less than 300,000. For decades in American schools, that history has barely been mentioned. Instead, silence has prevailed and the truth is a whispered history. Now, as you hold this, think that anything that once graced the neck of this mighty chief, every amulet, every beaded wristband, even the clothing worn by an Indian warrior such as he is endowed with spiritual power. This necklace has wool. I can feel it. This is from someone who has known great sorrow. You know that this belonged to a noble man whose people were annihilated. Most alternate history novels stick to a single perspective. But for The Man in the High Castle, Dick flipped his own premise on its head by inserting a second conceit within it. That second interior novel, The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, is written by a fictitious author, Hawthorne Abenson. And what Abenson writes about is another alternate account of World War II, one that is more familiar to you and I. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity and into light. Much remains to be done. The victory won in the West must now be won in the East. The whole world must be cleansed of the evil from which half the world has been freed. In Spotness's adaptation, The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is not a book, but a much sought after and rarely seen newsreel. Smuggled around the continent by a resistant movement desperate to wrestle America free from the Third Reich and imperialist Japan, the newsreel footage shows a defeated Nazi Germany and Nagasaki destroyed by the atomic bomb and the death camps in Auschwitz. And as we watch those resistance agents, as they incredulously watch the newsreel footage, we are brought back to Dick's questions. What is real and what constitutes an authentic human being? An overwhelming majority of people accept the historical reality that the Nazis were defeated and that America dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. But why does the Japanese government continue to deny the massacre of Nanking in December 1937? Or other people claim the Holocaust to be a lie 
a Zionist conspiracy, Jewish propaganda. One such person is David Irving, author of several discredited books about World War II. In April 2000, Irving was found by the British High Court to have deliberately distorted and willfully mistranslated documents, consciously used discredited testimony and falsified historical statistics, all to propagate his unfounded claim that the Holocaust is a hoax. And everybody's believed it for the last 50 years and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, nay millions of schoolchildren have been bussed across Europe to that site and told to go in that building and shudder because that's where millions of Jews were killed by the Nazis during World War II. And only now is the truth beginning to come out that nobody was gassed in that building because that building was built by the Poles, as they now admit, in 1948, three years after World War II was over. You can say the truth and be found guilty in German law because in German law it is a criminal offence to say, in this case, the truth, that what they show the tourists now in Auschwitz is a fake built after the war. Clearly, alternate history is not just a literary genre. Alternate history lives in everyday public discourse and has done so for a very long time. As Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels said, a lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. Alternate history thrives today in fake news and worst of all, the belief that facts are false. And in the wake of that comes conspiracy theories. Since becoming Russian leader, Vladimir Putin has been using the tactic of Kompromat, the release of compromising material to neutralise his political opponents. But the material, verbal innuendo and the digital manipulation of images and videos isn't real. What Kompromat does is flood the media with lies. Lies that are repeated a million times across various media until they are accepted by some people as the truth. Here is another quote from Goebbels. The truth is the enemy of the state. We are told we are living in a post-truth era. In other words, lies are not the alternate, but common currency. And if that is the case, what is real? I mean, if I can make you see the world the way I see it, then you will automatically think the way I think. You will come to the conclusions I come to. If, if, if I can control your perception. Season two of The Man in the High Castle streamed last December and having attracted more viewers than ever for any of its original shows, Amazon Prime has announced a third season. Why is it attracting so many viewers? Is it tapping into its zeitgeist? Is that zeitgeist fraught with fear that America is descending into fascism? Or is there another zeitgeist wishing America to embrace fascism? Here is Frank Spotnitz. The world that is in this book is so inhuman, really living under a fascist ideology where you can be killed because of your race or your sexuality or, or your you know, handicap is so brutal and dehumanizing. And it's not like, you know, Gandhi could shame the British, right, into surrendering India, or Martin Luther King could shame America into desegregating. You can't shame the Nazis, you know, and what do you do? What is the proper response? You know, what would you do? And most of us would do nothing. The Man in the High Castle is an intricately layered, well, in these uncertain times, it is hard to describe exactly what it is. Alternate history, allegory, science fiction drama, political thriller, morality tale, tragedy? Why not all of the above? And more. 
It certainly asks Dick's questions of what is real and what constitutes an authentic human being. And I think that any work of art that prompts us to examine ourselves and the way we treat others can only be of benefit, for it warns us of the consequences if we don't. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.